CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. And welcome to Patio Dining here at the Takeout we are on a Wednesday afternoon. What is the date? Oh, yeah, July 28th. We are in Baltimore at Village Square Cafe. And the reason we're here is to have a conversation with Dr. Lena Wen, who is a public health professor at the George Washington University, also author of a brand new book called Lifelines. Now, I want to set the stage for everyone in our radio audience, podcast platforms, and on CBSN. We were here March 5th of 2020 having not the same conversation, but the same topical conversation about coronavirus with Dr. Wen. And I want to mention a couple of things from that conversation that she said specifically, because everything she said in this, what I'm going to quarter with in just a second, is relevant now, just as it was then. Dr. Wen said on March 5th, there's a lot we still don't know, and that we have to be adaptable to new information, gather information as we can, And when the data or information changes, we have to change our approach. That's what you said, Dr. Wen, back then, March 5th. We'll get into other things you said, but that was so true then, and I think it's played out through the entire course of this pandemic, and yet it feels to me as if that's one of of the greatest challenges people hearing new information have had to deal with and public health professionals like you have had to deal trying to communicate it. Well, first of all, it's I'm, it's good to be back with you. Thank you for coming back to Baltimore. Sure. Last time we were um, indoors, indoor, yes, we're without out, we're on the patio any sense it's of safer. masks, exactly. That's right. And um, and last time I was also eight months pregnant, right. so I am I'm lot I'm a lot more comfortable <laughs> speaking to you than this, the last time. Um, but I mean, but but you're entirely right. If it's anything that I wish that we, as the media, as public health experts, if it's anything that I wish we did better of communicating. It's that change is to be expected. And actually, change is the bedrock of good public health policy. That when the science changes, you would want your policy guidance to change accordingly, too. It's actually not flip-flopping. Flip-flopping is if nothing changes and you change your position. But in this case, there needs to be constant reevaluation. And I actually think at this point in the pandemic, people have seen how many unexpected things have really occurred, including now with the Delta variant. And if we did not adjust accordingly, then we're not doing our jobs. Right. And we're in a period right now, as we speak, of adjustment. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has just put out, as everyone who's listening to us now knows, new guidance about masks for the vaccinated. If you're in a high concentration area indoors, you should wear a mask. Okay, that's a shift. Mm-hmm. And if your children are going back to school, regardless, they should wear a mask. They feel that's a change. 
Are those good guidelines? Is that where this should be in terms of public health? Mostly, although I think that the CDC's communication of these guidelines has been, frankly, very poor. Let me go back to in May. At that time, a lot of us were taken off guard by the CDC's sudden change in guidance. And which was? Which was that no they... Masks. That's right. Well, that's how people interpreted it. Right. It, and I think they were trying to say, which was something accurate, which is that if you are vaccinated, you're protected from getting coronavirus. Therefore, you can take off your mask. But because there was no proof of vaccination... Everybody understood it as, well, now we can all take off our masks and do whatever we want to do. Who cares about getting vaccinated? We could just do, we can live our lives as if we're vaccinated anyway, right? The honor system did not work. No. And it didn't prove to be what maybe the CDC and others on the optimistic side of that ledger thought would be an incentive for people to get vaccinated. Hey, if you want to get rid of your mask, go get vaccinated. Which would have worked if they said, and you have to show proof of vaccination. But the problem was that never came. The Biden administration was really uneasy and squeamish all along about this idea of vaccine verification. And now we have the situation we're in where I've also been calling on the CDC and the Biden administration to actually since since May to reimpose mask mandates indoors because the concern is not with the vaccinated. The concern is that the unvaccinated are masquerading as the vaccinated. They are passing it on to one another. And that's why indoor mask mandates make sense to me. And I wonder if it's, if it's possible to take these two issues and say, which is more important? Because I've heard some people say, look, the mask thing, yes, but it would be so much better if we increased our vaccination rate nationally. That's, right. That's exactly right. And if, the, if the, the mask conversation will be a diversion from that, it will be an angry distraction from that, we have to think more productively more persuasively about the vaccine side of this ledger. And we're just going to get into another noxious, knockdown, drag out fight about masks. Yeah. Help me understand (laughs) if that's possible to understand that. I I really agree with you. I mean, I think right now, since the CDC is changing guidance, there are a lot of vaccinated people who are very angry saying, well, why do I, I mean, I did everything right. Why am I now going to be wearing masks again? I think a lot of companies, a lot of businesses are also confused. What if they already have vaccine mandates? Do they still need a mask mandate on top of that too? I mean, where do you stop? And I think the CDC really could become a lot clearer. The Biden administration uh, more generally could become a lot clearer and say, if you're vaccinated around other vaccinated people, you are very safe. Therefore, the goal actually is to have all vaccinated workplaces. In those situations, people do not need to wear masks or distance. But if you have spaces where the vaccinated and unvaccinated are mixing, that's when you need indoor mask mandates. So I actually think that we should be focusing exactly to your point, Major, about how it's the we should be focusing on vaccine mandates. But to say if you don't want to do if you don't want to go there, Mm -hmm. then masks need to stay in place. So uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, I had a conversation last week in Annapolis, Maryland, with the governor of the state we're in right now, Maryland, Larry Hogan. And I said, Governor Hogan, at some point in the not too distant future, the federal, the Food and Drug Administration, rather, will authorize and approve the vaccines for COVID-19 on a full basis, not emergency use authorization. That will take a significant legal challenge away from those who don't want to encounter or comply with a vaccine mandate. I said, when that happens, will you consider imposing a vaccine mandate in Maryland? He said flatly, no. Hmm. Do you think vaccine mandates, once the FDA has said these are approved vaccines, should be implemented? 
I would go further than that and say that vaccine mandates should be in place now. That we do not need for full approval by the FDA in order for vaccine mandates to stand. And in fact. Our federal government, the EEOC, has already said that employers can do this. We've already had judges rule on lawsuits that are brought up, for example, by healthcare workers and and um, and, and and college campuses, saying that those institutions are allowed to implement vaccine mandates even with emergency use authorization. You know, I think at the end of the day, we have to make a decision of who we are as a society. I mean, I understand that we are a country that's about freedom and choice, but why is it that someone can choose? To go into a crowded public space and infect others with a potentially dangerous, fatal, extremely contagious illness. I understand that you know if you want to stay unvaccinated, that's your choice. But if you now want to be coming into into work or other public settings, then you have an obligation to play by the rules. I mean, we let people drink at home and in private. Fine, that's your choice. But you don't have the choice to get behind a wheel of a car, intoxicated, in a way that you could harm other people. And I think it's really time for us to start using that same kind of analogy to start talking about vaccines. So, from your perspective, and listening to what you just said, you believe that somehow this language about liberty and personal choice has been perverted yes. in the public health conversation. Yes. And in fact, I'll go back to one thing that Dr. Vivek Murthy, our Surgeon General, said when he issued the Surgeon General's advisory on health disinformation. I thought it was really profound. Among the other things he said that that were very good, but this I thought this is this just really stuck in my mind. He said that health disinformation takes away people's freedom. It takes away people's freedom to make the best decisions for their families. And I think that that is the moment that we're in right now. I mean, we have rules as a society for a reason. At some point, we have to decide, are we going to, is it the will of a minority to stay unvaccinated? Is that really going to outweigh the will of unvaccinated children who don't have the ability to be vaccinated? Why should they have to pay the price? Why should vaccinated people now have spillover infections that are infecting us? Why should we have to pay the price? Um, so I think all those, we just have to think about who we are. And I would also add, I mean, I really disagree with Governor Hogan for another reason, which is that there's another way around this as well. If there are, in fact, governors or businesses or other people who don't like the idea of vaccine mandates, they could frame it differently. Why don't we frame it in terms of a health screen? As in the default is that everybody has to get twice weekly testing. But so testing is required, mm -hmm. but you can opt out of that testing if, if you're, you're vaccinated. vaccinated. That is the voice of Dr. Lena Wynn, our special guest. More on this conversation about COVID and approaches, disinformation, misinformation, and the like. I'm Major Garrett. We're at the Village Square Cafe, Baltimore, Maryland. Segment two of the takeout in just one second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to our patio luncheon experience at the Village Square Cafe in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Lena Wen is our special guest, public health professor, the George Washington University, also author of the new book, Lifelines. We'll get to that book in a second. So, Dr. Wen, uh, I said at the 
beginning of the show, we were here March 5th, 2020, just to remind people where the United States was at that time. COVID was in 70 countries at the time. There were 100 confirmed cases in the Mm. United States, 100. And at that time, the World Health Organization had not yet declared a pandemic. Okay, this sort of was like the infancy, if you will. It wasn't. COVID-19 was basically two and a half, almost three months old, but it was not yet roaring, certainly in America. And we had a conversation very near the end about, well, do you think there might be some travel restrictions or do you think there might be some restrictions on going to a restaurant or maybe getting on a plane or a train? And you're like, oh, maybe voluntary. We'll see. We don't know yet. It, It was at its infancy, and it raged and raged and raged, and our whole lives were changed. But one thing you said on March 5th resonates now, and I want to play it. Jake, that's soundbite number one. There's so much misinformation about COVID-19 already, and the public depends on all of us as public health leaders, as officials, um, as government leaders, to tell the truth mm-hmm. based on evidence and that's clear, that's transparent, and that's honest. How'd we do on that? I think a lot of people did their best, and a lot of people did do exactly this. Um, I think it's too bad, of course, that we have seen, I mean, this was last March when we spoke, and we've seen scientists being muzzled by the Trump administration. And I actually think that with the Biden administration, that the pendulum has swung too far to the other direction. Really? I mean, of course, I believe in following the science and making decisions based on science. The only issue, there are two things. First is that public health is not just based on the science. Public health also depends on values. Public health also includes winning hearts and minds. And so you can get the science 100% right, but if you... You guys some food? Oh, sure. Oh, Hello. Okay. And your name again is? <laughs> Matt. Hello, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'll have the grilled Millie, please. You want multi-grain, sourdough? Multi-grain would be great. Chips, coleslaw, okay. pasta. I didn't know that coleslaw. we ordered in the middle coleslaw. of taping. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Dark, when, we, we, when Matt shows up, I tell him what I want to eat. That's just how it works. Yes. All right. Well, in that case, I will also get food because you have made me, you have inspired me to eat, too. Um, could I get the hand-carved uh, turkey club, please? I have some bad news. You do not Uh-oh, have that. bad okay. news. Okay. Turkey. Out of turkey. It, it goes quick around here. Village <laughs> okay. Square Cafe, it goes quick. Um, what, uh, what What do you have? <laughs> Maybe I should uh, ask. So, let's see. Rubens are popular. Shrimp okay. salad's popular. Shrimp salad sounds terrific. Shrimp salad, you want a multigrain sourdough or rye? Um, multigrain. And you get chips, coleslaw, or pasta salad? Um, pasta salad, please. Pasta salad? There we go. Thank, Thank you, Matt. <laughs> so, the pendulum is swung in the okay. other direction. What, uh, what is this overcompensation right. we're talking about that you yeah. see? So, there is this idea by the Biden administration that they have to blindly follow the CDC. Mm -hmm. Following the science does not mean that you listen to only one scientific institution. The CDC, as some people have said, is a great peacetime institution if you want scientific data. We're at war with the virus. We need to move very quickly. And just getting the science right is not enough. For example, we were talking about the May CDC guidance. Mm -hmm. They got the science right. It is true that fully vaccinated people at that time are very well protected. But if you just say that without an understanding of how people would interpret it, you get the result of exactly what we got. That's right. And so poor communication, 
poor policy. You cannot depend on one agency that's not actually meant to do this work to be your representative to set all your policy. And so I think the Biden administration is in a tough pickle here because they have said we're going to listen to the CDC without qualifying it and saying what they should have said is we will listen to the scientists. There are plenty of scientists and doctors working in other agencies within the White House itself. That's what they should have said, not we will listen to the CDC. So this is a neck-snapping moment for me, metaphorically, Dr. Wen, because so many people I talked to, and we did a tremendous amount of work on the pandemic with a daily podcast we created, then a documentary one, all to try to keep up with everything that was changing and all the various ways COVID-19 was affecting our lives here in America and around the world. And one thing we heard consistently all last year was, where is the CDC? Why isn't it front and center? Why isn't this great agency the one telling the country how we should think about this and what we should do? Now you're saying to me that they're good, but they're not only. That's right. And I'm, I'm having a hard time adjusting to that a little bit. Because so many people right. said... If the CDC had been more prominent in the Trump administration, things might have been better. That's right. And I do think that we should give the Biden administration a lot of credit for all the things that they're now trying to fix, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't come in at the start of the pandemic. They're trying to fix a terrible situation. And they've done a great job when it comes to prioritizing health equity, getting the vaccine supply, doing the initial vaccine rollout. They've done a lot of things right. But they've also really overcompensated. And now they can't walk it back. Mm -hmm. Now that President Biden said, oh, I'm going to listen to the scientists. I'm going to follow the CDC. He can't now say, but actually the CDC is terrible at communication and we need our comms and policy people to help them. Now it looks like that's politicizing the guidance as opposed to in the beginning, if he had simply said, I want all my scientists across all the government agencies to work together. You know, here's the here's the difference. What the Trump administration tried to do was they I mean, there are reporters who who have found evidence of them changing the science coming out of the CDC. Right. That's terrible or not allowing CDC scientists to speak directly to the public. That's terrible. But there's a big difference between that and only having the CDC drive your scientific policy. So this is a great way to merge the book you've just written, Lifelines, because you say in the book that at its best, public health is invisible. You say it works when people don't know it's there and there's not a big mistake or a big crisis. And you also talk about the necessity of those in the public health sphere to communicate in a way that the public accepts and believes. And I hear you saying now that's one of our biggest gaps. That's exactly right. Public health, we need to accept, is not just about getting something right. You can have the best data in the world, but if you don't convince people to do, to follow your guidance, you have failed. I mean, public health is about winning hearts and minds. Public health completely hinges on public trust. Now, I, of course, again, understand that there are so many different factors here. When there are local politicians, for example, or people in, in, in news media actively contradicting scientists, that also undermines or public trust. Or people on Facebook or QAnon or whatever sure. moving around and handing off conspiracy theories that only distract, misinform, and in some cases create misimpressions. That's right. And... Also, we have to remember, too, that people are scared. I mean, during the pandemic, even now when we talk about people who are not getting the vaccine, a lot of people are genuinely scared that the vaccine will cause them more harm than the virus. And it, it, when you're that scared, you also will look for things that justify your own worldview. 
And so you might look on the internet and say, well, I'm not getting the vaccine because these five websites of these so-called doctors, are, and I trust, you know, Tucker Carlson or whoever, and they say that you shouldn't get the vaccine. I mean, people can find outlets that justify them. Right. So one of the things we did, Dr. Wen, is we asked on social media for questions. We did this the last time. That's and right. we got some great questions, and we have some great questions now. So Ryan Robertson writes via Twitter, why get the vaccine if you've already had COVID? I had it seven months ago, and you still have the antibodies, according to my most recent test. Yeah, I think it is important to acknowledge that those who have gotten COVID and recovered from COVID do have some level of immune protection. What we know from studies is that the level of protection is not nearly as strong as consistent or as long-lasting as if they also got the vaccine. And in fact, those who recovered from COVID and then got vaccinated, in in a sense, they're super protected because they have a really high level of, of antibody response. I actually wrote in Lifelines about how my, my husband, prior to vaccines being available, contracted COVID. And it was very challenging for our family. Um, we have two little kids and trying to figure out how to protect them. They actually ended up having symptoms too, which is another another longer story that I talk about in Lifelines. But um, you know, there was no question though that I would recommend for him once vaccines became available that he get the vaccine. And it's because I want him to get the best level of protection, the most consistent level possible. And before we go to break, I want to lay the foundation for this next question from David Baker via Twitter. I'll ask the question, Dr. Wen, you can answer it on the other side of this break. Should we start doing rapid over-the-counter testing since the viral load of the Delta variant is so high? That again from David Baker via Twitter. Dr. Lena Wen, our special guest, will answer that on the other side of break. I'm Major Garrett. We're at Village Square Cafe, Cafe rather, Baltimore, Maryland, otherwise known as Charm City. Back for segment three of The Takeout in just one second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Good news. Lunch has arrived here at the Village Square Cafe in Baltimore. Dr. Lena Wen is our guest. I asked you this question, Dr. Wen. I'll repeat it again from David Baker via Twitter right before we went to break. Should we start doing rapid over-the-counter testing since the viral load of the Delta variant is so high? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that what he's referring to is the idea that even if you're vaccinated, we know that a person who is who carries the Delta variant ends up having a very high viral load. And I think the question then becomes, well, could you be an asymptomatic carrier with the Delta variant, not know it, but still be able to infect others? I don't know the answer to this question. Actually, this is one of the many things that we rely on the CDC for guidance. And one thing that I and a lot of other public health officials have been criticizing the CDC for is lack of data. As in, the CDC inexplicably in May announced that they would stop tracking mild breakthrough infections. So infections of people who are fully vaccinated but don't but aren't sick enough to be hospitalized. We really at this point don't know how many of these cases there are. We also don't know what is the likelihood if you are vaccinated to still be able to transmit the virus to others. And so I guess my my point here is you can get a a data point about how much virus you have from a rapid test or something else. But if you don't know whether that then corresponds to transmissibility, Mm -hmm. there's really no point in getting that. And so I would say if you are unvaccinated, definitely you should be tested. Um, If you are vaccinated, though, and asymptomatic, it's unclear whether you should just be routinely tested for the purposes of deciding whether you should be allowed into spaces. And this feels like a slight deja vu moment because when we talked again, March 5th, 2020 here, we said one of our problems is we don't know what the denominator is because testing was so inadequate at that time. We still don't know what our denominator is with this new 
app, this new variant and how widespread it is or isn't. That's right. I mean, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, is estimating that we're only picking up about one in 10 cases of COVID-19, which is astounding because if we now have about 60,000 daily infections, multiply that by 10, we have more than half a million new cases every day. I mean, that would be Not necessarily severe, not necessarily requiring hospitalization, but still part of a data set and something that we should know about in order so we can assess what it is or isn't. Right. If it's anything that we've learned in the pandemic, it's that if we don't test, we won't know. It doesn't mean that if we don't test, it's not there. It just means that we don't know about it. And I really, again, fault the CDC here. Two colleagues and I, Stan Vermund and David Holgrave and I, wrote a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association a couple weeks ago, specifically calling out the CDC. I mean, we're colleagues of individuals who work there who are great scientists. But It's not understandable to us why there are certain decisions that have been made that really run counter to public health good advice. So I'm going to read another question we got via Twitter, and I'm going to translate for FCC compliance purposes the uh, Twitter handle of the person who sent this in. Thank you. So the Twitter handle uh, is old... I will we're having a chai conversation. Sorry, Sorry. this isn't isn't hardly fine. I I will. I'm happy to drink it hot. All right, I'll grab you an ice one anyway. Okay. Oh, we want an iced chai as opposed to hot chai. It's really hot. Talk about lost in translation, folks. It's my fault. Lost in translation. (laughs) Pandemic or chai tea. It happens in every direction. I'm here to tell you. So while you were distracted by that, Dr. Wen, we have this Twitter uh, handle, and for FCC compliance reasons. I will read it as old, and then there's a three-letter word that begins with A that I will translate to rump uh, hippie. So old rump hippie. That's not his actual Twitter handle, but the FCC won't let me say what it actually is. Here's the question. I received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in March. If and when a booster shot is necessary, will the booster be specific to the vaccination I received? Would it be possible to take two doses of Pfizer and essentially switch my protection? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And I will say that I also got the Johnson Johnson one dose vaccine in March. And so I'm exactly in this position. I was actually enrolled in the Johnson Johnson clinical trial, found out I got the placebo and then got the the J&J vaccine. When you get any other vaccine, whether it's the flu vaccine or... We are fully chai compliant now (laughs) at this table, ladies and gentlemen. Fully chai (laughs) compliant. (laughs) We have proof of chai at this table. Iced and hot. <laughs> but also proof of vaccination helps too. But <laughs> we have so much food. Um, so um, if you get any other vaccine, think about when you got your tetanus booster or the flu vaccine. Have you ever asked, what manufacturer is this? I bet the answer is no. I don't ask. I mean, who asks what, what company um, manufactured it? So all this is to say there's no reason why you need to be somehow stuck on one vaccine. Mm-hmm. As in, if you got the J&J vaccine the first time, actually, a lot of us think that the heterologous combination, a mix of something else, actually helps to boost your That's immunity. That's a big word. So, or that means a mix vaccine. of something, right? Exactly. And so, um, and so um, if and when a booster is needed for those of us who got the, the J&J one-dose vaccine, you would get the one-dose of Pfizer or Moderna. Got it. Potentially, you could get a one-dose Johnson Johnson, too. But that one-dose of Johnson... What do you think Johnson- the likelihood in our future, near-term future, meaning by September, October, November, we will be having a national or localized conversation 
for some populations about the need or imperative of booster shots. Hi, we're already having that conversation now. There are some individuals who have gotten the one-dose Johnson Johnson vaccine, which we now know is less effective at preventing at least against symptomatic illness, especially with, with the Delta variant. There are some individuals whom some doctors are already recommending for those individuals to get a booster, again, a one-dose of one of the mRNA vaccines with Pfizer or, or Moderna. There are people who are severely immunocompromised who got the two-dose Pfizer or Moderna in the first place who may benefit now from a third booster dose. And so I would be surprised, actually, if we don't have a longer conversation, including about older individuals with chronic medical illnesses who probably got vaccinated earlier on. They probably got vaccinated in December, January. I would imagine that those individuals probably will be recommended to have a booster shot before this winter season. I want to ask you about vaccines because there is a conversation that is primarily, well, it's the unvaccinated and the unvaccinated are one kind of people, hesitant, resistant, or downright opposed. But I've also read, wait a minute, wait a minute, access in parts of America is still an issue. And some people who may be open to it can't get it, can't take the time off, are worried about the side effects. Where do you think that proportion is? I actually think it's the majority who are in the movable middle. Yes, there are some people who truly will not be vaccinated. I mean, they will get dug in. And in fact, hearing about mandates may make them even more dug in. I think that portion of people definitely exist and we shouldn't discount that group. However, I also think that the majority of people who are yet to be vaccinated are in the movable middle, as in they are people who have concerns that should be addressed. They also don't think they may be young and invincible. We know that the 20s, 30-year-olds, the teens who are eligible are not getting vaccinated yet, but a lot of them are thinking, well, I'm I not going to get that sick. I used to be one of those sick. young and invincible. <laughs> well, I used to be young. I don't know if I used to be <laughs> invincible. But in any case, these are the individuals who, if we have mandates, they will move. We know this based on prior experience. We know that vaccine mandates really work. And I'll tell you, when, when I was the health commissioner in Baltimore, which I, I actually wrote, wrote about this in, um, in, 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 uh, in my new book, In Lifelines, about school health and how at the beginning of the school year, there are thousands of families who have not met the requirements for vaccination. It's not because they're anti-vaxxers. Maybe some of them may have some concerns, but the main reason is there's so much else going on in their lives. I mean, there's so much else going on that they just haven't gotten around to getting the vaccine. And they don't know how important this is. But knowing that it's something that's required for school, it definitely pushes them over the edge. And then we end up setting up vaccine clinics. And so I hope that's what happens. I hope it we have... It drives them toward the decision. That's right. So I And I actually think that the opt-out is going to be really important. In, in a way, it's like the TSA pre-check. That you say, everybody needs a test. But you can bypass this process that's otherwise kind of onerous to get twice weekly testing, let's say, if, if you, you can show. Vaccinated. That's exactly right. So before we go to break, I want to give you this question from Sam Carswell via Twitter. Explain how a mask rated at three micron limit can stop a virus that measures only one micron. We know from studies. This is the reason why we know from real world studies that show when both people are wearing masks that it protects the wearer. It reduces the level of, of, of transmission. And here's the other kind of the physiological reason, if you will. Virus doesn't just kind of exist. The virus is carried on something. It's carried on particles that are then stopped and respiratory droplets and other particles, other microscopic particles that are stopped with a mask. Excellent. So those are all the questions we got via social media, and I promised to ask them, and we have done exactly that. When we come back for segment four... 
Dr. Wen is going to listen to something she said on March 5th, 2020 about masks. It won't actually be that pleasant, but it will be informative nonetheless. I'm Major Garrett. Segment for The Takeout coming up in just one second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Village Square Cafe is our restaurant host today. We're in the great city of Baltimore. We're with public health professor at George Washington University, Dr. Lena Wen. She's also also author, put those two A words together, Major, of the book Lifelines. So, Dr. Wen, we have referred a couple of times to your appearance on this very program at this very location, March 5th, 2020. And you said the following when I asked you about masks. I get asked about masks all the time, and so here's the answer. Everyday people should not be wearing a mask. It gets damp, it becomes a reservoir for germs, and because you're not used to it, you touch your face. And when you take off that mask, all those viruses are released onto your face. And so it, it seems counterintuitive, but that mask will not be effective. It may actually be more harmful to you in some ways, too. We'll file that under that was then, this is now. That's right. And I think that it's important to remind people, and back to what I had said at the very beginning of our conversation today, which is that science changes, that um, if it's any one thing that I wish we did a better job of, myself included, at the very beginning of this pandemic is to continually remind people that this is a new virus, that we're learning so much over the course of time. I mean, when we spoke back in March, I don't think we could have anticipated that this is where we would be right now, that we would be here. And the big thing we were concentrating on then, at least in that conversation, was about surface transmission. That's right. And also about... Everything that touched your hands. Well, we also thought about... We were maniacally cleaning everything, including our groceries. Right. And... I think we also believed at that time that this was something more similar to influenza, that it's really this direct contact that we're concerned with. And by the way, back in early March, we really didn't know about asymptomatic transmission. So then you put those things together. And then at that time, we thought, well, what's the purpose of wearing masks? If you really are only spreading it, if you are coughing, sneezing, then you could just not be around other people if you're coughing or sneezing. You don't need to be wearing a mask. But science has evolved. And I think this is really important that... If it is that we are changing our guidance, but no science has changed, then it would be legitimate to say, hey, why are you changing your guidance? You know, what, why are you flip-flopping here? Except in this case, if science is changing, if the understanding has changed, then your policy needs to change accordingly. So in your book, Lifelines, you talk about a lot of things that the public health sphere does. One of the things I want to ask you in that context, because I read this most recently in the context of why people are hesitant about vaccines. Atlantic had a very big article about this recently, the Atlantic magazine. We have low health care literacy in this country. People just don't know what they don't know or don't understand what's being communicated to them, and that makes them hesitant or nervous or fearful. How big a part of that is public health dealing with or not dealing with, our literacy? That's interesting. I mean, I think that... The literacy for public health is even harder than health care. 
as in even many people who are in healthcare may not necessarily be thinking about public health. So let me distinguish those two things. Healthcare, it's what happens when you go to the hospital, when you go to the doctor and you go literally to get care for your diabetes or your heart condition. But the food that we eat, the air that we breathe, the housing that we have access to, all those things actually impact our overall health and well-being even more than what happens in the four walls of a hospital. But public health works when it's invisible. And this was one of the main themes in my book that I talk about how public health saved your life today, you just don't know it. I mean, I, I used to be the health commissioner in Baltimore. We did all these restaurant inspections. This is one of the reasons I picked this restaurant. This is a great restaurant that's safe as well and as having food good food. <laughs> but um, But you don't hear about all the restaurant inspections we do that prevented foodborne illness. Right. You don't hear about all the home remediations that were done to prevent one case of lead poisoning. Right. You don't hear about all that work that's prevention, but as a result, public health becomes the first thing on the chopping block. So politicians don't understand it. That's why they cut the budget all the time. But I would say that everyday people also don't understand it. And I would actually put the onus here on public health officials. As in part of the reason I wrote Lifelines and the reason I do the work that I do as a professor and researcher in public health is to put the face on public health because you don't establish trust overnight. In a time of a pandemic, you're asking people to do really difficult things, right? You're asking them to put on masks when they never put on masks before. You're asking them to quarantine at home and not go to work. I mean, these are really challenging things to do. People don't want to do them. They won't do them if they don't trust you. So how do you establish that trust? It's by showing people the work that you do every day. For example, telling people about the restaurant inspections, showing people what these what the home remediations for lead poisoning really look like and how that helps individuals. We really need to put the face on public health. So I want to ask you about another thorny topic in America, which is gun violence, gun gun issues. That is a public health issue, is yes, it not? Yes, absolutely. Are we addressing it or even coming close to it in a conversational way in this country? I think it is important for us to address gun violence and violence more generally as a public health issue. And in fact, one of the programs I used to run in the health department, which many people wondered why was this part of the health department, was a program called Safe Streets Baltimore. And that was a program based on the, there's a national model called Cure Violence, initially started in Chicago, with the idea that we should be treating violence in the same way that we treat any other contagious illness as in it can be prevented, it spreads from person to person, and so you can interrupt the chain of, of, of transmission. You can use data and research to study it in the same way that you study any other public health issue. And so Safe Streets Baltimore, as an example, hired violence interrupters who were mainly people um, um, who were recently released from incarceration. They walked the streets of the city. They interrupted those chains of violence. And Johns Hopkins did an independent study that found that this was one of the most effective violence interruption programs in um, in Baltimore, that this stopped hundreds of violent um, interactions that could have resulted in shootings. Um, and I'm proud to to say now that Safe Streets, um, thanks to the new mayor of Baltimore, is actually expanding. It's now in ten sites in Baltimore. It, it was five, it was four when I first started. We expanded it to five. Now it's ten sites in Baltimore and growing. And I think that kind of public health approach is really important. Sounds like that dialogue could be used in several cities not named Baltimore in this country, because yes. as you've seen statistically, we're not back to where we were in the late '80s, early '90s. But crime rates are going up in urban centers. That's right. That's right. And I do think that acknowledging... Mostly driven by gun violence. Yes. And acknowledging that public health is a partner in this effort and that there are some public safety initiatives that are best done 
through the health department, I think is actually a good way for us to go. Mental health, as an example, why should the police be the first responders for mental health emergencies or to assist individuals with homelessness or addiction? I think it's important for us to look at how public health can partner with the police and other entities in order to advance public safety priorities. And as I listened to you describe that program, I didn't hear you say anything about gun control, meaning I'm, I'm doing something about the laws relating to access to firearms. You're doing something else, intervening right. and sending people who have experience in this world, some of it difficult, to help stop the chain of violence. That's separate from the gun access or gun rights issue. That's right. And I talk a lot in Lifelines about my philosophy in public health, which is as a pragmatist. You do what you can. Changing federal gun laws, I mean, that's not my my area. I mean, somebody else can be working on this area. But in the meantime, there are things in the community that we can do that are also really effective. We should be scaling up these interventions, and we should also be doing studies into what's actually effective. I mean, we don't know, right? I mean, is it background checks? Is it restricting assault weapons? I mean, what is actually effective? We should be studying this from a scientific viewpoint so that the conversation is driven by the evidence and not by ideology on both sides of the debate. Very good. That is the voice of Dr. Lena Wynn. She's been our special guest. Our host restaurant, Village Square Cafe, here in Baltimore, Maryland. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell for those on CBSN. Hello there. And on our podcast platforms, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial, where this conversation, scintillating as it is, will continue. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Dr. Lena Wen is our special guest, public health professor at the George Washington University, former health commissioner here in Baltimore. You see her on a cable network many, many times every week. You do a lot of stuff on that cable network. CNN is what it's called. I used to work there. No, 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 uh, no antagonism towards CNN. We had a very nice time together for two and a half years. Uh, Dr. Wen, anything that we haven't talked about in regards to where we are with COVID that you want to get across? I think people should know that the pandemic is far from over. And in fact, with the Delta variant, we are in a really dangerous time. So if you get infected with the Delta variant, you're carrying around a thousand times the viral load. A thousand times the viral load than with previous variants. And viral load is... Viral load is how much virus you have, and that is directly related to how contagious you are, how many people you're able to infect, and possibly how ill you might get as well. And so I really want people to know that if you are unvaccinated, you are at a higher risk now than probably at any point earlier in the pandemic. And if you are vaccinated, there is the spillover effect. I mean, I've been talking about the vaccine as a really good raincoat. So you're very well protected if it's if there's a drizzle around you. But if you're in a thunderstorm and you keep on going in and out of thunderstorms, at some point you're going to get wet. And so that's not saying the vaccines are not effective, but rather that the vaccinated are very much impacted by the unvaccinated around us. And in fact, the choices of the unvaccinated are making it harder for the rest of us to resume our lives. I skipped one of our questions. Uh, this came via Facebook, and I apologize to Mark Spence. So, I'm Mark, I hope you listen all the way through, because everyone who listens all the way through gets every single part of the takeout. But here's your question, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll read it exactly as he wrote it. Uh, do you think, in all honesty, that mRNA COVID vaccines are far superior to the viral vector vaccines and will probably be more effective for the 2 to 11-year-old population months from now? 
Yeah, so the mRNA vaccines are Pfizer and Moderna. The viral vector are the Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca. I, I think is is this is what what um, what he's referring to. Based on the evidence that we have, it does look like the mRNA vaccines are more effective at preventing symptomatic illness. Meaning, not just I mean, it looks like everything is effective at preventing severe illness, but at preventing symptomatic illness, mRNA vaccines probably are better. We are also much further ahead with studying this for younger age groups. So there are already trials that are ongoing. Are Hopefully, getting close when it comes to Pfizer and the um, in a younger age group. So I, I would anticipate that for kids in the six to eleven year old group, that we'll have some results in the coming months. Um, ideally, so that the kids in that group can be vaccinated this fall. And so by the time those studies are done for an older or for for the other vaccines for Johnson Johnson AstraZeneca, it'll it'll definitely be longer. Our folks who send in questions do a terrific job. They did a terrific job last March, and they did a terrific job. So thanks to everyone who did that. One of the questions we got back in March of 2020, Dr. Wen, was, should we be worried about mutations? And your answer back then was, well, we're not really sure. It doesn't look like coronavirus, as we understand it, is going to be the kind and in the classification of viruses that mutate many times. Well, we've learned this one does, and this one will. And Delta is not the only thing we have to cope with. There's a lambda already in the United States, right. and there'll be another mutation after that. We may fill up the entire Greek alphabet. We will fill up the entire Greek alphabet. Okay. So here is the issue with 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 mutations. So viruses mutate, right? That's what they do. When they mutate and there are new variants that develop, the vast, vast majority of mutations have no significance, as in nothing really happens. There's a mutation, but they don't necessarily spread. We look for three things. One is, is it more transmissible? If it's really transmissible, it becomes the dominant variant, as we saw with the alpha variant and then with Delta. Second, does it cause more severe disease? And third, does it evade the protection of our existing vaccines? Now, the reason we're so concerned about ongoing spread is the more more viruses replicate, the more they mutate. And so when you look to see where did the mutations first originate, the ones of concern, they originated in South Africa, in Brazil, in India, in the UK, in places where at that time there were virus hotspots. And so the more there are hotspots around the world, the more it's going to be a problem with us here. And as someone once said about this, as long as we don't share vaccines with the world, the virus is going to share the world. Right. And we're still way behind on vaccines for the world. Yes. So uh, I'm going to amend our three famous questions, our threshold questions, because you've already answered them. Go back to that uh, early March episode to hear her answer to favorite book, movie, and music. So I'm just going to ask you this, open-ended. Okay, good, because I forgot what my right, answers exactly. were. Right, <laughs> uh, Because we've all, did, we, we've all led, to one degree or another, a binging life during the <laughs> pandemic. One or two things that you were able to binge, watch, and particularly enjoyed during the whatever time you were able to find amid all of the things you do in your life uh, to do? Oh, um, here's some things that we binge watch. I mean, my husband and I definitely watched a lot of movies. Um, mm-hmm. We're binge watching the Olympics now. Right, of course. Um, so, um, and actually, I have recently taken up during COVID times, I decided that I was going to face one of my, my fears. I know this is not actually the question oh, that, that, that you're asking, but um, <laughs> so I have, since I was very young, I, I had severe asthma. And I really could not tolerate the idea of going underwater. 
because to me it seemed like it replicated. Right. That's right. And so I I never swim. I never put my head underwater until two months ago. Really? Yes. Congratulations. And I've decided that I'm going to take up swimming. I mean, obviously not to compete in swimming, <laughs> yeah. but just to You will actually... not be lapping Katie Ledecky or anything <laughs> no, like that. No, no, no. But but it's something that I'm very proud of. That's having fantastic. Faced well done. The sphere and I can now do And as two you know as a, as you know as a physician, it's tremendous <laughs> exercise. It's one of the That's best right. ways you can exercise your body and mind yes. that, that you can find at That's any right. age, but particularly those of us, I'm a much more advanced age than you are. Um, but swimming is a great way to exercise. It really is. It's yep. a lifelong exercise. That's right. And I think it's good for my mind to also learn something new. And I feel like I have I've faced one of my, my lifelong fears. So I'm now obsessed with watching the swimming Full take Olympics. Out. Congratulations <laughs> to you, okay. Dr. Thank Wen. You. That's it for the Takeout app. Take a special. Again, our thanks to the Village Square Cafe here in Baltimore. And, of course, Dr. Lena Wen. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank See you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.